You were one. Thank you, Al. Good morning once again. It's great to be involved in worship this morning. We're already off to a great start in singing and praying uh, together. Appreciate that, Aaron. Appreciate that, Mark, and uh, your excellent leadership of what we're doing. Colossians chapter 1, please, this morning. Colossians chapter 1. In your Bibles, we will be focusing on that very thought that we were singing, in Christ alone. In Christ alone. This will be our focus uh, this morning. Colossians 1 has a tremendous uh, emphasis on our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to have our Bibles open there. We'll have a few thoughts or a few guidelines on the monitors to help us in our thoughts. But um, our content, as always, comes right from uh, the Bible. In Christ alone. You can't put anybody else's name in there, can you? You can't say, uh, in me alone, or in uh, my grandfather alone, or in Muhammad alone, or in Confucius alone. Uh, you, just can't, you just can't do it. You, you, the only one uh, who, who can create a song like we just uh, were able to sing is Christ. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. And I urge us uh, all together to give our focus to uh, this one, the Son of God. Uh, there is no better way to start a new year than to have a strong emphasis on the one who loved us and gave himself for us in Christ alone. We won't be able to, of course, mention mention all the powerful associations of the idea of of Christ alone, but we can get started and we can encourage uh, further study along these lines in Christ alone. First, in Christ alone we find our priority. In Christ alone we find our priority. No doubt about it. Notice here in Colossians 1 and verse 18, he's the head of the church, he's head of the body of the church, but it also says there that in all things, in all things, Jesus must have the preeminence. In all things, Jesus must have the preeminence. Let's take a moment and and define that. Uh, The ideal here is, um, this is someone who is before and above everyone else and everything else. Someone who is above and before anything else and anyone else. Uh, Jesus is to be superior. He is to be supreme. He is to be, he is to be the surpassing value uh, in my life. And so in Christ alone we find our priority. Notice uh, over a couple pages in Colossians 3 and verse 11, the last statement in Colossians 3 and verse 11, where it says, Jesus is all and in all. Jesus is in all. He is my all. He is in all and He is all. 
Okay. He is the preeminent one. He is our priority. Notice at the end of Colossians 1 and verse 16. Colossians 1 and verse 16. Everything was created through Him. And notice this. And for Him. For Him. This is Jesus. Everything and everybody was created through Jesus and for Him. In Christ alone we find our priority. He is first. He is first. You say, why didn't you just say He is first? Well, because the Bible has this word preeminence there. And it emphasizes it uh, for us. He is before all things. And He is all things. He is the one who created it. Everything's been created for Him. If Jesus is first in our life, then He will be first in our affections. Okay. I want you to kind of outline this in your mind before we move on. Jesus must be first in our affections, in our decisions, and in our possessions. But if He is first in our affections, everything else will fall into place. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Set your affections on things which are above, not on the earth. Set your affections on things which are above where Christ is. Seated on the right hand of God. See, our affections. Our affections. We can read from Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Jesus Himself says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You see, if He is first in our affections, Everything else falls into place. Jesus gives this warning in Matthew 10, 34 to 37. Matthew 10, 34 to 37, where he says, He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anybody else could be put in there. If you love a friend or boyfriend or girlfriend or aunt or uncle or anybody, more than Jesus, then you're not worthy of Him. You're not worthy of heaven. You're not worthy of the Lord's uh, doings. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 as well, when we think about our affections. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in, in verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust does corrupt, and where thieves can break through and steal. But lay yourselves up treasures in heaven where none of this can take place. And then Matthew 6.21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, our affections are so important. What do we really love? What really drives us? What, where do we spend our time? What do we spend our time thinking about? Jesus must be first in our affections. Back in the time of Napoleon, He had money at his disposal. and He wanted to erect a statue to the goddess Venus. Goddess Venus. And so he contacted a very famous sculptor out of Germany by the last name of Daniker, asking him to erect this sculptor or or erect this statue to, um, to Venus. But he refused. The sculptor refused. He said... I have already erected a statue to Jesus Christ. 
And I cannot lower my chisel to create a statue for an inferior object. He understood something about the preeminence. He understood something about the priority of Jesus. He could not lower his chisel to to erect or to create an inferior object. And how dare us lower ourselves to set our affections on anyone else but our Lord. So first this morning, Jesus in Christ alone we find our priority. Also, in Christ alone we find salvation. You knew we'd be talking about this, but isn't it wonderful to read about it? Of course, in Christ alone we find our salvation, but notice it here in Colossians 1 and verse 20 where it says that Jesus made peace through the blood of His cross. Look what He did. Jesus made peace through the blood of His cross. Look what God did to bring salvation. God had His Son go through the torture of the cross. Look what God provided for our salvation. The blood of Jesus. And look what we can have because of of the Lord's love for us. Because of the Lord's suffering for us. We can have peace right now. But we have to reach that blood. We have to reach that blood. And that's where the world comes up short often. Even our religious friends who will acknowledge that Jesus ought to be the priority in our life and He is the preeminent one, sometimes they come up short in the reaching of that blood. It clearly teaches us in Romans 6, uh, 3 and 4 that it is through obedience to the gospel, especially in the act of baptism, being baptized in water, Uh, for the remission of sins, it is in that act of baptism that we reach the death of Jesus where He shed His blood. Look what God did for us. Look what God has provided for us. And and as we walk the Christian life, we we read in in 1 John 1 and and verse 7, as we walk in the light, as He is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us Uh, from our sins. If we walk in the light, if we continue to walk in the path that the Lord has laid out for us in His steps, then we can continue to have that cleansing blood. We must reach that blood. But oh, how thankful we are for what He has done uh, for us. Now notice right here in Colossians 1, verses 12 to 14, some remarks about this salvation. Once a person has received salvation... Look what the Lord has done for them. And look what the Lord wants to do for anyone. Colossians 1 and verse 12 says, He qualifies us for eternal inheritance. He qualifies us for eternal inheritance. That's why He died on the cross. He wants us to be there with Him eternally, right there at His throne. As as Romans 8 brings it out, verses 16 and 19, he, he wants us to be joint heirs with Christ. He wants us to be right there and enjoy all of heaven with Him. So in saving us, He qualifies us uh, for that eternal inheritance. Notice also there in Colossians 1, 12-14, He rescues us from darkness. He rescues us from darkness. Darkness always is the symbol of evil in this world. Jesus can rescue us. He wants to. He has. He can rescue us from darkness. John 3.19 says, 
when Jesus came into the world, many rejected Jesus because they loved darkness more than they do the light. Not only did Jesus rescue us from darkness, but he also transfers us from one kingdom to another. From the kingdom of darkness, or domain of darkness, to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Now this idea of translating or transferring from one kingdom to another carries with it the idea in the old times when one nation would conquer another. When one nation would conquer another, they often brought many of the citizens out of the conquered nation to the other nation, transferring them from from their nation to a foreign land, like, like Daniel and others happened in the Old Testament. And this is the very ideal behind us being transferred from the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of God's dear Son. But the first thing that has to happen is God has to conquer us, you see. He has to conquer us. And He will do that through His love and through the teachings of the New Testament. But He can do that. If people have, if anyone, any one of us, have an open and honest heart, God will come in and He will conquer us through the teaching of His Word and through the love that is shown uh, through the cross. He will conquer us. And once that conquering takes place, we have no problem then submitting to His Word and, and obeying Him and letting Him transfer us, translate us from what kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His Son. So He qualifies us for eternal life. He rescues us from darkness. He transfers us from one kingdom to the kingdom of His Son. But notice also here, looking down back, back down to verse 20, he, he reconciles us to Himself. You see, sin has taken us away from Christ, away from God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says sin separates us from God, creates a tremendous, huge gap between us and God. James 4 and verse 4 says friendship with the world is enmity with God. We're just away from God. But Jesus, through the cross and through our following Him, can reconcile us make things friendly again. He can make us best friends with God. Salvation. Salvation. It's just wonderful to read. No wonder Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. And wasn't it wonderful when Peter stood up for Christ in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, when he declared Jesus to be that stone which you, the builders, have rejected, but He has been made the head of the corner. And there is salvation in no other person. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the one. In Christ alone, we find our salvation. And then also, as we move along here, this this morning, in Christ alone we learn to pray. In Christ alone, of course, we learn to pray. It, it would be worth our time, and you've done it before most likely. We've done it together. Where we just went through the life of Jesus and noticed uh, the times that he prayed. But it's also very good to notice Paul here. Paul was an inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, but also Paul lived for Christ in a very dedicated way. And so what he says about prayer here is, is very good. 
Let's notice prayer generally. Notice Paul says in prayer there ought to be some asking. You see that in Colossians 1. There ought to be some asking. Paul says in Colossians 1 and verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. There ought to be some asking uh, in prayer. Notice in in Colossians 1 and verse uh, 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father. There ought to be some thanking, gratitude uh, in prayer. Also in prayer, there ought to be a focus on other people. Paul is not praying for himself here. He's praying for you. You Colossians, you Christians at Colossae, you who are trying to, to live for Christ, you who are going through different struggles, I'm praying for you. So there's the focus in prayer. There ought to be some giving there's some asking in prayer, some thanking in prayer, but also not only the giving of thanks, but also the focus in prayer ought to be other people. And there ought to be a persistence in prayer. Notice Paul says here in Colossians 1 verse 9, he says, from the day that we heard of your, your love in the Spirit, he says, we have not ceased to pray. There ought to be persistence in prayer. We talked a little bit about this last week when we, talked, when we were looking at the miracle of Jesus and, and the blind men, how persistent they were. Jesus does say in Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be given unto you. Or knock and the door shall be opened unto you. There ought to be persistence in prayer. And then there ought to be specific things in prayer. Appreciate the way Mark was specifically naming people in prayer this morning. Paul was very specific in prayer. But here's what I'd like to highlight for us. I want us to notice his specifics. Not just notice how specific he is. But what is it that Paul prays uh, for the Christians in the city of Colossae? What is it? And it would be good for us to let that come over into our prayers as well. As we pray for others. Now what we pray, of course, is wonderful. And we all pray in different ways. But we also ought to let the Bible guide us as we pray. Notice the five things that Paul prays for these Christians. He prays, and you can see it there in your Bible, Colossians 1, 9 through 12. He prays for knowledge, that they will be filled with knowledge and increasing in that knowledge. That's if you're wanting to sit down and pray for the church, or if you're going to sit down and pray for someone, it starts right there. It starts right there. And when you pray for someone to have knowledge and filled with knowledge, then you're going to want to try to help them to become uh, that way. And then wisdom. The second thing he prayed specifically was for, for them to have wisdom. Wisdom is the proper application of that knowledge. It's not enough just to have knowledge of, of Scripture but to see it properly applied to our lives. Wisdom. The third thing he prayed was a worthy walk. A worthy walk. If we had time, we could just follow that word worthy. I encourage you to do that. Take this as one of your little word studies. Look it up in, a, in your dictionary. Look it up in, your, in the back of your Bible and, and find the word worthy or find it somewhere and let that take you to different passages. But a, a worthy walk for the Lord. And then he prayed for them a fruitful life. So he prayed for knowledge and wisdom, a worthy walk and a fruitful life. And then finally, if you look at verse 11, he prayed for them to have strength 
to be able to endure, strength for endurance. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He prayed that they may have that type of strength. Prayer is tremendous work. It is a tremendous work for God. Someone has said, don't count the things that you do. Do the things that count. One of the great things that counts is prayer. Especially prayer of this sort that you find here in Colossians 1. Because this will lead us to want to serve others and help others. If we pray fervently for these specifics, then we'll want to be busy helping them uh, to become mature in Christ. In Christ alone, we find our priority. In Christ alone, we find our salvation. In Christ alone, we, we learn to pray. We learn to pray. And then notice this, in Christ alone, we find our hope. Hope is mentioned a couple times here in Colossians 1. Notice it with me in Colossians 1, verse 5. Paul says, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And then notice it again in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not not drifting away, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which, you, which has been proclaimed uh, unto you. A couple things about our hope. Notice the location of our hope is in heaven. Is in heaven. We remember what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. Even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But there is that one hope, and the location of that hope is in heaven. Notice the basis of this hope. It is based on the gospel that you have heard, the truth, the truth of the gospel that you have heard. That's how we obtain that hope. The pathway of our hope is the gospel. Notice the importance of maintaining that hope in verse 23 here. Not being moved away from, not drifting away from, not shifting from the hope that the gospel brings to us. And notice living out this hope. I love noticing what verses lead to what verses. Notice how that one statement leads to another. Notice here in Colossians 1 verse 4 what Paul is saying to lead him to talk about the hope. Notice here in Colossians 1 4 he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you. That means the Colossians were living out their hope. They had been serving the Lord. They had grown in their faith. They were loving each other because of that hope that's living, that is laid up for them. Notice the location of the hope. Notice how the, the basis of the hope is the gospel. Notice how we ought to maintain that hope, not drift away from it, and live it out. Live out that hope by having faith in God and loving each other. Now, there's an important statement here regarding hope. Notice it in Colossians 1.18. It says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. From the dead. 
This doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one ever raised from the dead. Jesus himself raised people from the dead, Lazarus. He raised other people from the dead. The widow of Nain's son, Luke uh, 7, we read. Jesus raised him from the dead. But it does mean that Jesus was the first and only one to have been raised from the dead to die no more. To never die again. So notice a companion passage here. Turn over with me to Romans 6, verse 9. You'll want to notice this in relation to Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 6, Paul says, verse 9, he says, We know that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died for sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives unto God. So you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God to Christ Jesus. This is one of my favorite all-time passages, Romans 6, 9 through 11. We're not qualified to die for sin. Jesus died for sin. But we are certainly to die to sin. And when Jesus died for sin, He would never die again. And when we die to sin, we are to ever more after that live for God forever and ever. Romans 6, 9 through 11. Jesus establishes this hope. He helps us to face death. One of the first things a person has got to do to live faithful to God is to go ahead and look death squarely in the face, knowing that you will be there one day. And once you're able to see that Jesus is the Lord who is in control of not only life here, but life after this life, then everything is good. You're ready now to live for Him. We remember in Revelation chapter 1 that John saw Jesus. Revelation 1.17 John says, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. And Jesus goes on to say to John, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. In Christ alone, we find our hope. Our hope. Some of the features of that hope. When we die, we get to be with Christ personally. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Second feature, when we die, we will have a changed body into a spiritual body like Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.21. When we die, there will be a changed environment. Heaven will be a changed environment. No more earth. It will be a place of no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, Revelation 21.4. No more death there changed environment. It will be a place of enhanced service. If you don't like serving God now, you won't like heaven. You probably won't, won't get there anyway. Revelation 22, verse 5, we will be serving Him. 
sermon. I don't know about that. Don't ask me about that. I don't know what kind of service that's going to be. It will be service. We're not going to suddenly become God, okay, when we get to heaven. God will still be God. He will still be the creator. We will still be the creation. We just get to be in a better place, much better place, and we'll have an enhanced field of service before us. And the fifth feature of, of, of our hope is eternal life. It will never end. Eternal life. Get to be with Christ, a changed body, a changed environment, enhanced service, and it will never end. It's an eternal life existence. In Jesus alone we find this hope. And then the final thing we'll say this morning is in Jesus we find his joy. In Christ alone we find his joy. I want you to notice how this is worded. I didn't say our joy. His joy. See, the, the desire of Jesus, according to John 15, verse 11, He says, I speak these things unto you. John 15, 11. So that you may have my joy and that your joy can be full. Can be full. There's previews of this in, in the Old Testament. But here's, thing, here's what we got to we, we just got to know that God wants to give us His joy. His joy. Here in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 11, uh, Paul says, uh, I'm praying for you that you will be strengthened in your faith uh, toward all patience and, and uh, power and endurance. Okay? And he says, I want all this to happen with joy. Paul had so much joy, notice in Colossians 1.24, that he says, I rejoice in my afflictions for you. And that's a man full of joy. God wants us to have his joy. His joy. There was a man who was flying on a plane, and next man, the man was, another man was sitting next to him. He noticed this particular man had his wedding finger or his wedding ring on the wrong finger. On his middle finger. And he just got the best of it. He finally asked the man, he said, why, why do you have your wedding band on, on the wrong finger? The man just quickly replied and said, because I married the wrong woman. That's all he said. I just married the wrong woman. Some people get the wrong idea real fast about marriage but a lot of people also get the wrong idea about being a Christian. Being a Christian is not about, not about being sad, somber, and serious all the time. It's a life full of joy. Jesus wants to give us His joy. His joy. Now I could say to you, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to have uh, next month, I'm going, to, I'm going to open a business. It's going to be a Christmas tree farm. Christmas tree farm. I'm going to open a Christmas tree farm. Now, of course, that statement has no foundation because first, I don't have any land and I don't have any money. I don't have any interest in doing that. Okay. And I'm not sure people around here would have an interest in buying real Christmas trees on a Christmas tree uh, farm. But the reason that is ridiculous for me to say is because I have no foundation for it. But look, we see right here, just from the little bit we have read from Colossians 1, 
that there is plenty of foundation for joy in Jesus Christ. There's plenty of foundation for joy in Jesus Christ. Just the pure mention of the, of the hope of heaven. Hope of heaven. Why can't we be joyous in Christ? Think about our past, present, and future. If we are serving Christ, our past is taken care of because it says in Hebrews 8, verse 12, that, that God will remember our sins no more. So there, that takes care of our past. Jesus says in John 10, verse 10, I am come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That takes care of our present. And as far as our future goes, Psalm 23, verse 6 says, We'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That takes care of our future. Where is it that we can't have joy? God has taken care of our past, our present, and our future. Now, as I said a moment ago, our service in heaven will be enhanced. Much of what we enjoy now, the blessings of Christ now, will be perfectly and uh, tremendously enhanced for our enjoyment in heaven. This is a foretaste of glory divine we sometimes sing with blessed assurance. This is a taste of what is coming. The best part of a chocolate cake is licking the pan. And heaven is like that. We get to partake of the cake now. But in heaven we get to lick the pan. What is there, what is there about serving Christ that is not joyous, that should not fill our hearts and souls with happiness? We mentioned a moment ago, take your Bibles and look with me. We mentioned the persistence in prayer. Now I'm taking up a little bit of your time. This is not, that's not proper to say this is God's time. So we're taking up God's time with God's word. Look at Luke, Luke 11. And notice this because this is important to our joy. Our joy goes along with our persistence in prayer. I'm going to start reading Luke 11, beginning in verse 5. He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell, tell you, although he will not get up and give him anything, because... He is his friend. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise finally and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask. Okay, he makes a switch here in this story to God. Ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Whoever seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, this is where we're going here, what father among you, if he has a son, asks for a fish, will he instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he, um, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father, notice this, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to them who ask him? It's sort of like a thousand to one ratio. If you just think about it, parents with your children, it's got to be at least a thousand to one ratio. 
In other words, when it comes to your children, you're going to, you're going to be thinking about giving them good things a thousand times more than you are thinking about correcting them. Now, you're going to correct them. But if you just thought about what's the ratio between my wanting to give them good things for them to enjoy and that will enhance their life, it's going to be at least a thousand to one. How much more shall your heavenly Father give to them who ask Him? Where is it found that we cannot be happy and joyous serving Christ any time on earth. In Christ alone, we find our joy. We can keep going, but the invitation is now going to be opened up to any of us to consider Jesus Christ. The greatest person ever to walk on this earth, of course. The greatest thought who will ever enter our mind, is the Lord. We invite you home to Him. Won't you please come right now as we stand, as we sing, Brother Henry.